This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today's episode is largely about the legality of crowd sales, and we touch on the DAO, but of course it was recorded before recent events, so the subject matter might seem a little bit humorous. <laughs> anyway, the content is excellent and, uh, and timeless, so enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Ether Review. I'm joined today by Peter Van Valkenburg of CoinCenter who joins me today to discuss the regulatory issues of the DAO and other algorithmically issued tokens. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Arthur. It's great to be here. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for joining me. So can you tell us actually about Coin Center to begin with and, uh, and what its interest in the DAO is? Sure, sure. So Coin Center is a nonprofit research and advocacy center, and we're based in Washington, D.C. We're focused on the public policy issues that face open and decentralized blockchain technologies. So starting with Bitcoin, of course, which was generally, if you ever went to a policymaker, the, the first thing they wanted to learn about. But then as the ecosystem evolved, we've taken a strong interest in representing the technology behind, say, decentralized computing platforms like Ethereum, and also interledger systems and protocols like sidechains. Our mission in general is to build just a better understanding of these technologies here in Washington, D.C., and with other regulatory contexts abroad, in order to promote a climate that preserves the freedom to innovate using these tools. And so we do that primarily by producing and publishing policy research from, say, respected academics or experts, by educating policymakers in the media about how these technologies work, and then ultimately by engaging in advocacy for sound public policy. The main thing there is just education, again, is just helping someone in Congress or someone in a federal agency here in the U.S., understand how the technology works. Sometimes we go a little bit further than just education, and that's in situations where there's a law that already exists that might involve these technologies, uh, say like the, the laws for money transmission here in the U.S., and where it's unclear whether those laws apply to people doing different things with cryptocurrency, for example. At that point, uh, we'll do some policy research, we'll look at the definitions of these activities and how they're regulated, and we'll come up with a position as to whether they should be regulated under existing laws or whether there's a good case for them being outside of those laws. And for a period of caution and a period of permissiveness to be appropriate, that maybe one day would be replaced by some sort of more uh, carefully considered regulation rather than something that's sort of a knee-jerk reaction to a crisis or something like that. So the idea is regulating the cryptocurrency space under existing law, which was not drafted in anticipation of these new developments. Right, right. And, and you know, this is something that comes up uh, in technology policy all the time, not just with regards to cryptocurrency. So we've got copyright laws that have massive implications for a company like Google. We've got defamation laws that have massive implications for a company like Facebook. We've got money transmission laws that potentially have massive implications for any company that wants to do something using cryptocurrency, unless we can make an argument that cryptocurrency isn't money, which sometimes works cross-purposes with what the developers of peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash want it to be, you know. 
But so these are the issues that statutes are drafted broadly. Usually they're technology agnostic, they're activities based. And some of these new technologies facilitate people in their ability to do those activities. And then there's this whole complicated question of which activities involving the technology are those old legacy activities that are regulated and which aren't. The the biggest example, going back to our work in Bitcoin primarily, is multisig. This is sort of the simpler smart contracts that are already available uh, on Bitcoin, wherein you just have a two of three in order to move the funds. If somebody helps you set that up, are they a money transmitter? Are they a money transmitter if they hold one of three? Are they a money transmitter if they hold two of three? This is a very difficult question because I think most people would agree that a one of three is not a money transmitter. They're doing something else. They're, they're providing a security feature, you know, a backup or a redundancy tool. Um, they're not actually transmitting the funds themselves. And they probably shouldn't be regulated like somebody who is transmitting funds themselves. But a two of three, they could. Grappling with that is one great example of the kind of open questions that looking at new technologies in the light of old laws brings to the surface. And a lot of our work is there when it's not just educating policymakers. You also asked about why the DAO interests us, because the DAO is, is in many ways similar to older forms of organizing communities. It's in some ways similar to organizing a venture capital firm that would dispense funds to promising projects and repay partners, whether general partners or limited partners. But of course, there's no legal agreements, generally speaking. This is something that's just done using cryptography and economic incentives on a decentralized computing platform. So is it that? And if it is that, how will it be regulated? And if it isn't that, how can we communicate that to policymakers to make sure that it isn't prematurely regulated? So uh, personally, what do you think about the DAO? You know, what do you see its role being in the big picture? How does this change the story of the internet? So a friend of mine and I were talking about Ethereum just generally. And of course, this was, this was like a couple of weeks ago. So of course, the DAO came up pretty soon in that conversation. He's also a lawyer. We had a lot of disagreements about some of the relative merits and risks associated with it. And I think that's, that's totally fair. There's a lot of complexity there to, to discuss. But the one thing we agreed on is that the DAO is exciting because the internet has gotten really weird again. And, you know, the internet, for, for me, for someone who grew up with the evolving internet, always seems to go through these cycles where something really weird happens and it's amazing and you're suddenly uh, enthralled by the possibilities of open innovation. You know, either it disappears because it fails or it succeeds and everyone just understands it and it becomes commonplace. Like Facebook, for example. Now everyone and their mom is on Facebook, and so now a lot of kids aren't on Facebook anymore. And I feel like we go through these periods where nothing much happens, and then something fantastic happens. And the DAO is really one of these examples, because no matter what your perspective on the legal issues or on the technological potential vulnerabilities, you've got to appreciate that there's this smart contract, that there's this piece of software out on the internet that is in control of about $150 million in value. I mean, that's just, that's weird. And from that weirdness, maybe great things will come, or maybe um, we'll just learn some lessons. So that's my personal opinion. I think that the DAO has grown so fast, I think faster than most people expected, probably faster than anyone expected, that it's now like the poster child for the excitement inherent in these open networks, but also the dangers of moving too fast and breaking too many things. 
So you say the excitement inherent in open networks for financial information. What do you compare this to in terms of what existed before and where this excitement kind of stems from? Sure. So I suppose when I'm talking about open networks, I'm talking about platforms more generally. So a lot of the the amazing things that we've come to take for granted are the product of amazing platforms enabling developers to build applications, get them out to users, and enabling users to find them and use them. And so the two best examples of this are the PC, which was an open platform for people to develop software, to run software, and the great applications like the early, now mundane applications like word processing and such were really quantum leaps um, for just individual productivity, individual creativity, let alone later developments like Photoshop, like 3D CAD software, like everything we love now about the PC. Gaming, of course, as well. And then the internet is the other great example of a platform that enabled a sort of uh, permissionless innovation for app development. And so just as you had PC apps that really were incredibly useful, the internet gave us web apps that were incredibly useful, and they also had the added amazing feature of being networked. So we could easily establish communications with other people, do shared computing, do social networking. I see Ethereum as another one of these open platforms, as well as Bitcoin, as well as cryptocurrencies in general. But Ethereum is kind of a notable example because of how easy it appears it is to rapidly prototype new apps. Evidence for that is just how quickly the DAO suddenly appeared after the Ethereum platform went live and how quickly it even gained enough traction to get some serious funding. So Ethereum is this great platform for innovation and experimentation. You know, people can prototype a new application that would not just involve computing like the PC as a platform, not just involve communications and networking like the internet as a platform, but also involve trust and trust in and agreement over things that are really important, like, say, the relative scarcity of a token like, say, the voting rights that that token grants somebody, like, say, the disbursement of funds once funds have been raised. So that's what I would liken it to. I'd liken Ethereum to the PC and the internet, uh, and I'd liken the DAO to some of the early, really interesting experimental apps that you want to run on those platforms. Now, this is, uh, it's interesting because Ethereum and the internet in general are unique in that they are not products rather they are platforms like you described them and today so much of what we see is in fact one way or another a product either it's capturing your information for resale or it's something that you actually have to pay for but there is actually no direct profit motive from the development of the internet or the development of ethereum is this something that is it the novelty or the scarcity of these platforms that make them interesting do you think I mean, I think there's always a profit motive involved, actually, even if you're developing the internet or even if you're developing the PC. It's just kind of a, I hesitate to say pure because I sound religious, but it's kind of a pure profit motive. Someone who's out to gain network effects is not necessarily out to make a quick buck. They're not out to make a, a cheap giga that's got planned obsolescence that they'll be able to sell repeatedly to a customer. They're out to make something that's going to be fundamental to their lives, that's going to be the lower level of a stack that will have many things built on top of it that will be important. And yet they're still self-motivated, of course, because if you design the lower level of something that everything eventually runs on, you've developed expertise in an area that will always have gameful employment. You've developed a prestige of a sorts. You've become the Tim Berners-Lee or you've become the, the Vint Cerf, you know. 
And that's something that I think a lot of techies dream of. So I think there's plenty of motivation to develop these. That's both selfish and selfless. I think people who are really excited by the internet, people who are really excited by Ethereum have a vision for a world that is, of course, less centralized, where power is more evenly dispersed amongst people, and where anybody, regardless of their starting point, if they can learn how to code, if they can connect with a relatively affordable device and hopefully a relatively affordable internet connection, can have access to that platform and then can rapidly share and and create their ideas for human betterments. So I've gotten a little profound here, but I think that's what's so exciting about these these tools. So taking that perspective of the internet or Ethereum as the lower level of the stack, I suppose ADAP is kind of the next level up. I've spoken to some people who suggest that ADAP is a finished application. Others who say ADAP sits below a finished application or inhabits a kind of a gray area between them as a facilitator of applications which are built on top of decentralized networks. How do you envision ADAP? My expertise is not in coding on Ethereum, so I wouldn't take a strong position in in that particular debate. I just like to think about these things generally as the kinds of things we'll have to inevitably explain to a regulator, for example. So if there is some sort of tool out there, whether it's an application built on a DAP or several DAPs, or whether it's the DAP itself, if there's an application that does, for example, insurance or insurance markets, or that does futures in weather prediction or anything like that, that's what we're going to have to explain. And that's what I would call a decentralized application. It's these things that are software that provides some sort of meaningful or useful service to uh, an end user that instead of running on a centralized server, as cloud-based services and internet applications do today. It runs on all or most of the computers on the Ethereum network in order to establish trust or in order to have full auditability of the code and a lack of reliance on a centralized counterparty. That is, in my opinion, a dApp. But you know, the terminology is pretty fluid, I think, at this point. It's you all at the Ether Review who have that great list of dApps that are actively in development. Is that you all? No, no, that, that's not us. That's, uh, that's, let's go. Oh, it's because the domain is ethercast.com that I got. Ethercasts. Yeah, that was um, Joel Dietz of Swarm, oh, Swarm. Fame, that, uh, that project that shall not be named. Um, and and, uh, and there was someone else in there maybe of slightly uh, better pedigree. I mean, great, great work though. Awesome work. I, I really like Joel. I mean, you know, uh, Joel and I actually were um, some of the first to start thinking about securities regulation in this space, um, in large part because of uh, both being in attendance at some early policy conferences. Yeah, real pity about Swarm. That was just one of the most brutal incidences. Yeah, so it didn't work out, right? And, and, and then it got linked up with the Bitcoin Foundation and a failed decentralized voting app for the board of directors and all that. And that's whatever it is. But I have to say, we should never be too harsh on the failures unless they really hurt people. And I don't know how many people were really hurt by anything involved in those snafus. I think really they're pretty good examples of creative destruction of the Schumpeterian sense. You need to iterate, you need to fail, you need to fail early, and then you need to learn. We're still trying to do some of the same things. We're still trying to do voting on blockchains and eventually we'll get it right. And it's only through the continued and successive failures of earlier pioneers that I think we'll get there. In the interest of that line of thinking, what turns a DAP into a DAO? <laughs> so this is this is sort of the even harder terminology question for me to grapple with personally. And it's definitely, as we start to approach these topics with regulators, going to be a real source of confusion, I think. So speaking with people in the community, especially Joe Lubin, 
The way I'm coming to grips with it is that a decentralized organization is a DAP, and it's a DAP that has a number of users who also help govern the operation of the DAP. And they govern the operation of the DAP by either holding distributed organization tokens, so these are things like the DAO tokens that had their sale recently, or perhaps by having possession of certain private keys that have simply been enumerated by the software that's running on the protocol as having some sort of authority as having the authority to vote, as having the authority to edit, or some sort of right in order to decide what the software should do. What we have thought about when we think about explaining this to policymakers is it's not altogether unlike having permission to edit a comment on a big group Google Doc. But of course, unlike with a Google Doc, the permissions are mediated by the decentralized platform. They're mediated by Ethereum, not by Google corporate. And the whole thing doesn't run on a centralized server like Google Docs runs on Google servers. It runs on all or most of the computers in the Ethereum network. And I keep saying all or most because I understand to some extent that as we grow these networks, we'll need to scale them and there's a possibility of sharding in the future. So maybe the code will only run on some. It won't run on all. Yeah, what's the difference between, you know, we've got a DEP, we've got a DAO, and we've got a DO, like just a distributed organization. And the real issue that I have with the A and the DAO is that all smart contracts require external impulse to activate them. A transaction has to be sent to them to set them off. So they're always dependent on something outside of the Ethereum network. In all cases, they cannot self-execute. So if you're going to claim autonomy, it has to involve both an Ethereum-based element and an external element that will activate the Ethereum-based element. So, you know, how do we even justify the autonomous part of that acronym? It's a good question. Maybe we justify it because it's good marketing, because the idea of an autonomous uh, thing that's hanging out there in cyberspace that is in control of itself and control of the funds it's accumulated is exciting. I know part of the reason a lot of people originally got into Bitcoin was listening to Mike Hearn talk about self-driving cars that own themselves and not only own themselves, but had little baby self-driving cars that they'd take a birth loan from and have a genetic algorithm put slightly different software on the baby car. And then you'd have this sort of competing ecosystem of autonomous cars that are driving everyone around. That's like Neil Stevensonian, or I don't know what that is. That's Mike Hearn kind of riffing about what might be next. And it was exciting. That's very like Philip K. Dickian, you know. He has a story about how mankind gets into this massive war and develops these factories that burrow deep into the earth and continue to fight this war until eventually it's won. But the factories continue to run. They're self-driving, uh, they're self-driving cars and they're mining operations, collecting resources and providing for the nation that they were originally developed to protect, but completely unaware that the war has ended and they're no longer needed. It's a great trope in sci-fi, right? I mean, even to some extent, that's Frankenstein, right? That's creating the technological monster that goes further beyond the desire of the creator than the creator probably hoped or anticipated. But as such a provocative trope in sci-fi, I don't think it's all that surprising that we see it now coming up in Ethereum. It could be a way to drive excitement about this thing. But at the same time, there is something autonomous in the sense that a corporation is, in many regards, in legal parlance, is a person. It's a legal person. It's something altogether different and more than the sum of its parts. So you have shareholders in a corporation, you have a board of directors, you have management, you have a C-suite, 
And the corporation is not just each of these people individually and together. It is something separate. So maybe a smart contract or a DAP that has a lot of people putting money into it in return for tokens of some sort, that has a management structure that is dependent on the actions of those people. Maybe it is something separate than those people. And maybe it is autonomous. That would be kind of what we would call a legal fiction, but legal fictions matter. So they're not just marketing. Exactly. You talk about its independent existence from its parts. There was a, uh, this French fellow, Victor Hugo, who, uh, who came up with this term. Do you know where I'm going with this? <laughs> um, I do know Victor Hugo, but I don't know where you're going. <laughs> so he was actually in an occult group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And he did a lot of work with them on this thing, like what are these strange social entities that seem to have an independent existence? And he termed the coin egregore. I don't know, can I quote this from memory? Terrible monsters that crush us with indifference for they do not know we exist. And so the idea, I mean, that's the corporation, right? And it seems like, in a sense, the autonomy that a DAO holds is this kind of independent existence that comes from the interaction of a large number of people, but rendered digital. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is Hobbes's Leviathan, too, actually. The Leviathan was the state, and it was a sovereign in and of itself. People read Hobbes differently, but there's that great woodblock print cover of Hobbes's Leviathan that has this man rising over a field and he's got a crown and he's got a scepter. And if you look closely, the man is made up of a whole bunch of little men. And that image is a great way to actually read Hobbes. So pessimists read Hobbes and they think Hobbes is a pragmatist. He worries about disorder and chaos in the state of nature and says that people should band together and identify who amongst them is the sovereign and then follow the sovereign. We only want one leader. We don't want chaos. And so if you found someone powerful, pay homage and do what he says or do what she says. But the other way to read Hobbes is that the sovereign of a state is how everyone comes together and becomes something larger than themselves. Hobbes was not a contractarian in the same way that Locke was, but through some sort of conversation that happens amongst the people within the state. It's in Leviathan. As you said, it's in Victor Hugo. We've gotten crazy esoteric. You might even want to cut some of this out of the podcast. No, no, this is gold. This is gold. It's discussions like this that actually bring us closer to understanding what on earth we're dealing with because the internet is weird again. And we need to actually look back at people who were thinking about weird stuff and try and mine for answers and mine for metaphors. When I first started podcasting, it was the first question I wanted to know was, what metaphors do you use to describe Bitcoin? How do we find a mythos to give this new thing context? The fact that we have this confusion whether or not the DAO should just be a DO is because we don't really have an understanding of what this thing really is. I think that's right. Yeah, the, the only thing that makes me uncomfortable is I don't know how helpful the mythos is or the esoteric discussions are from my line of work, which is normally fairly different than this podcast, which is trying to find a somewhat less threatening or frightening explanation for these things. They're not necessarily all that threatening or frightening. They're still fairly small scale uh, as compared to the global economy. And they're also not necessarily too bizarre in that we have the internet as an early experiment in decentralized communication networks. We have the PC as an early experiment in home computing and the ability to empower everyone. And now, maybe, if we don't act out of fear from a policy perspective, if we don't crush these networks when they're in their infancy, 
hopefully we will have amazing networks to do even more things on top of. And as I said, I, I really think the way to look at it is the PC-enabled home computing, the internet-enabled massively networked home communication, and blockchains, whether Ethereum or Bitcoin, will enable home trust. You'll actually be able to establish a really trusted relationship with anybody else in the world who's on the same network as you. And that's fantastically interesting. So our day-to-day is much less esoteric. It's trying to find simpler ways to explain these things to policymakers so that they can wrap their heads around them and they can hopefully get excited about them in the way that we are excited about them as technologists and hopefully see that because they have this potential future value that comes from experimentation, we shouldn't look at the experimental failures as dangers that need to be stopped. We should look at them as part of a process of trying to find new ways to organize society. And we should protect people from the harms, but we should still enable that process to go forward. Because really, these are just new ways of representing social contracts that we already interact with day to day, but on the internet. Right, right. So let's actually look (laughs) at what we originally intended to talk about, which was securities. And which token is a security and which tokens are not securities? Right. So at a basic level, you have the question of these platforms, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And these platforms, they do have these scarce tokens, Bitcoins and Ether. Securities law, as we started to talk about earlier, is one of these laws that's described as an activity. It's described as a flexible test for whether you're engaged in selling or offering securities. And that flexible test primarily today comes from the Howey test, which comes from a Supreme Court case that dealt with the Securities and Exchange Act. And the Howey test says basically that a security shall be an investment contract. And an investment contract for the purposes of this act is a transaction or scheme where a person invests money in a common enterprise and is led to expect profits solely from the efforts of the promoter or a third party. And it doesn't matter um, in the Howey test, and this is also in that Supreme Court case, it doesn't matter whether the shares in the enterprise are described as shares or whether they are sold with sort of a formal written certificate or simply by some sort of nominal interest in physical assets. So a nominal interest in a physical asset is owning some physical asset within the enterprise. Owning some sort of physical asset within an enterprise such as Ethereum or Bitcoin, if we were to call it an enterprise, would be owning Bitcoins or Ether. So now if we look at that test, that's a broad test that could cover a lot of things. It could potentially cover a shared enterprise where we all try and develop peer-to-peer electronic cash, or it could not, depending on how you read the test. And if you look at the history of securities law, you see all kinds of cases, aside from the Howey case. The Howey case was about orange groves, by the way. It was about people who owned an orange grove, had a beautiful hotel on the orange grove, and would invite tourists down to Florida to, to tour the orange groves and to relax in the hotel. And as you brought people across the orange groves and they appreciated the warmth and the beautiful setting, they'd say, oh, the grove is so beautiful. And then the person giving the tour would say, I'm glad you think so. The grove is for sale. And then they'd sell you five trees. They'd sell you like a strip of land that had five trees on it. And they'd say, you're going to actually buy that land, but we'll also allow you to sign this other contract that says that we'll maintain the trees, we'll harvest the fruit, and we'll sell it at market and give you a share of the profits because they're your trees. So this doesn't sound like a security. It's not something that you would see traded on an exchange or have a a couple letters describing it like Google. It sounds like something different, right? It sounds like you just bought some trees. But 
this Howey test comes from the case where the Supreme Court says, no, sometimes just selling trees and contracts for maintenance and profits is offering a security. There's other cases. There's selling minks, the animal that you make coats out of, (laughs) and offering a contract for profits from your mink farming operation where all the minks are owned by your investors. Condominiums bring up these security laws. Country club memberships bring up these security laws. So if a lot of things can be a security under this test, maybe these platforms like Bitcoin and Ethereum can be securities. And out of fear of these really innovative and innovation-enabling platforms being judged to be securities by the SEC and then being regulated as securities by the SEC, we developed a framework that helped regulators at the SEC try to come to grips with what these technologies were doing and that ultimately made the case, and I think it's a very genuine case, I don't think we're stretching the law at all, that these things really aren't securities. So if we go back to that Howey test, there's a couple prongs in there. The Howey test requires common enterprise that is generating profits from the efforts of a promoter or third party. So in Bitcoin or Ethereum, where you have a diverse ecosystem of participants that are working together, but separately to build value on the platform, you're not talking about the kind of common enterprise wherein all of the value of the thing comes from a couple of people uh, managing a corporation, if you will, or managing an orange grove or managing a mink farm. You're talking about an ecosystem. Just as you have an ecosystem of private companies that mine for gold or mine for platinum and also find uses for gold or platinum, whether in science or in jewelry, and the value of gold is dependent on this diverse ecosystem. It's not dependent on a small private group of people like the value of Google is really dependent on a small private group of people. And so I think we make a pretty good case that generally these decentralized cryptocurrencies are not securities because of that diversity of participants in the common enterprise because there isn't a third party or a promoter. Additionally, especially things like Ethereum, where the token Ether, aside from having potentially a speculative value as an investment, it plays a more fundamental role as a necessary component of a decentralized computing system. So you need Ether in order to execute contracts on Ethereum. You need it as gas. It has this utilitarian value to it that is apart from the speculative value. And there's a line of cases in securities law that makes the same distinction, interestingly, about condominiums and about co-ops. People buy real estate sometimes to speculate, but plenty of people buy real estate to live in it. And it's that utilitarian value of being able to live or get utility from your investment that saves condominiums generally from being considered securities under the law. And I think that matches pretty one-to-one with Ethereum, actually. So we don't believe that there's much of a colorable argument that Ethereum or Bitcoin are securities. That said, there are pretty scammy altcoins out there, Paycoin probably being the best example, where the token was sold in a crowd sale, and the value of that token was really 100% contingent on the efforts of the small group of people who were developing Paycoin. And it was pumped by their marketing efforts as well, with all kinds of strange things like a guaranteed $20 price floor, integrations with Amazon that failed to materialize, of course. In that case, maybe that sale of a token is a security because it doesn't have a diverse range of promoters or people in the enterprise. It really just has one. It's uh, Josh Garza in the case of Paycoin. And really, people were buying it because they wanted to get rich, not because they wanted to use it for its use value. So what kind of uh, consequences do you see in that case? 
So Josh Gars is already under an investigation by the SEC for uh, offering and selling unregistered securities. The investigation actually isn't about Paycoin. It's about his cloud mining operation. If I describe the Howie case well enough that you followed it with these orange trees in the grove, it's actually kind of similar to cloud mining. Josh is out there selling you a hashlet, I think he called it, a little mining rig in a warehouse somewhere, and you're going to own that computer. I'm not selling you shares in my mining operation. I'm selling you a computer within my mining operation. So it's the same, in some ways, the same kind of obfuscation that the people in the Howie case were trying to foist over their investors, which was, we're not selling you shares in a profit-making operation for oranges or for hashing power. We're selling you a physical object, a tree, a hashlet. And so in the cloud mining scenario, it's pretty clear that the SEC has a very colorable argument that what he was selling was a security. Um, they have not reached the same conclusion with the Paycoin stuff, even though it's not all that dissimilar and it comes from the same person of fairly ill repute, but they could. And so the consequences, which is, I suppose, what you were really asking about, the consequences are that you get pulled into an investigation and charged with selling unlicensed, unregistered securities, which is a pretty serious crime here in the U.S. What about the Dow? So this is something that concerns us, not because we think anyone's doing anything wrong deliberately or has malice here. As I said, I think the Dow is a great app that could really be one of the valuable assets to these nascent platforms, to Ethereum or, or more broadly to the idea of having trust platforms for computing. That said, the arguments that, that we can make about Ethereum not being a security or Bitcoin not being a security are a bit more difficult to make in the context of the DAO because there are probably fewer contributors to the software and marketing efforts of the DAO than there were to Ethereum or Bitcoin as pretty diverse platforms. And the profits of those individuals might be pretty strongly linked to the value of the token. And investors really may be relying on the efforts of those individuals to generate a return for them. A lot of these things start to look like a security. And additionally, I think people purchase DAO tokens less because they're hoping that there's utility attached to them and more because they think the value of, of that DAO token will rise ultimately. Which, I mean, it has been sort of explained to the Ethereum community as something that will be profitable, that will return value to the people who believed in it early on. And I think that's a good thing. I don't think all DAOs should be nonprofits if we could design them as such or something like that. I think that there's a lot of good that can come from a profit-driven piece of software. That said, I worry how it looks in light of securities law. The Slocket proposal for using the DAO funds, aside from promising some sort of return to people, to the DAO specifically, if the Slocket proposal is funded. One of the returns is, I believe, those holding DAO tokens can utilize devices that are locked with the Slocket software. So it's sort of like an entry pass. In that case, the DAO would have sort of a utilitarian value that's apart from a pure investment value. More like a crowd sale, more like I paid into this smartwatch company because I wanted smartwatches at the end of the day. But it's not as clear an argument as with Ethereum. It's not as clear an argument as I bought some Ethereum early on because I wanted to code with it. I wanted to be able to write smart contracts or pay for things that are smart contract provided. It does have a lot of the indicia of a profit-driven enterprise. And then building on that, 
I think what concerns us is that the Securities Act intentionally defines promoter of a security very broadly. It's defined as any person who alone or together with others directly or indirectly takes initiative in founding the business or enterprise. Given the breadth of that language, there are many incredibly smart, incredibly creative, incredibly important people who have been associated with the DAO in some way. I'm sort of dodging just coming out and saying it, but it really it's those pictures of the curator, of the people involved in the curator. And given the breadth of the definition of promoter, I am concerned that people who maybe aren't even particularly involved in the DAO because the role of the curator is just a whitelist and because from what I understand, it's not entirely clear that everybody was totally on board with being displayed as the curator, but then there was debate. Because of the breadth of the SEC language, if, and this is a big if, if the DAO was found to be a security, and if it was then, of course, found to be an unregistered security, because nobody registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, then I hope that some of the really important people in the community, in the Ethereum community, and in the decentralized computing community generally, are not suddenly seen as being promoters and thereby legally liable for the creation of this unregistered security. Okay, so given the fact that this could be classified as a security, right? So let, to quantify this, just for the purpose of you know coming to an actual point of action from this discussion, say there's a 25% chance that a DAO token would be classified as a security. I, I don't want to justify that number. I just want to actually put something on it. And then say there's a further 25% chance that the curators of the DAO, let's actually make it 20% just to make it easy, the, the maths easier. Say there's a 20% chance that the curators of the DAO are considered to be promoters and are thus liable for the issuance of that unregistered security. Is that 5% chance of that outcome worth maintaining the existence of the DAO as a capital pool that can be used to develop and push the Ethereum ecosystem forward? Should the DAO be dissolved? You know, that's the kind of question that I don't think I have any right to answer as one individual. I'm like a lot of other people in this community who believes in decentralization, who believes in spontaneous order and in self-organization. And I don't like to tell people to shut things down. I simply don't. So I could never make that call. I think the moratorium that has been requested for technical reasons and security vulnerabilities potentially is good. I like the idea of caution. I like the idea of moving slowly. I would have liked to have seen the Dow grow slower, to not have suddenly been the equivalent of about $150 million. Because what I worry about is people getting hurt and then an overreaction from policymakers that is in many ways justified because people got hurt, but at the same time, potentially not fully cognizant of the long-term benefits of this kind of experimentation. So here's why I'd say no, the DAO should not be dissolved. You've finally gotten me to settle on a more concrete answer. So at root, the DAO is the first really big example. I mean, I know we have bit shares and we have some other things, but the really big example of an attempt to build a community and organize the resources of its members according to rules that are software, which is really interesting. So unlike traditional communities where, where rules are specified in human language and they're enforced by courts enforcing contracts or people enforcing norms within their group, within this DAO community, the rules are specified in software code and they're enforced by decentralized computing platforms that use cryptography and economic incentives to try and keep people from committing fraud. 
within that community to try and achieve a truly communal result from the resources that that community has amassed. That is very exciting. And so the DAO surely has risks for the community members who have joined it, but it also presents a really generalized reward to society writ large. It's a valuable experiment that's testing a new software-based mode of community organization that may or may not prove superior to the existing structures that we have already seen that are built on laws or built on norms. And as with any new invention or scientific discovery, we simply cannot know the rewards and risks of a thing like the DAO if we do not allow it to be studied or developed. While to some extent the DAO has made my job and I think Coin Center's job a bit more difficult because it's hard to explain to policymakers and it may be implicated by their laws, it's a really important thing, I think, for me personally to try and get this right because what we're preserving, hopefully, is the ability for communities to find new ways of organizing, new ways of creating value for their community members. And it's exciting. So what are the consequences if the DAO was found to be a security? Ignoring the potential implication of the curators, what other consequences might we see emerge? Well, yeah. I mean, the question is, is who is the promoter or issuer of the DAO? And so if it's not the curators, maybe it's the people who wrote the white paper, maybe it's the people who actually launched the code on the Ethereum blockchain, if you know exactly who they are and you can find them. Um, those people are, are technically potentially liable then for having issued or promoted this unregistered security. At that point, it's a question of whether the SEC is willing to make these, again, you, you put a 20% probability on any of them, make these questionable and very open-ended judgments. Yes, it is a security. Yes, we'd like to go after people who were promoting it or issuing it without registering. It's quite possible that the SEC would withhold here to some extent. And it's something that we would, of course, advocate for because we believe that these technologies are important. We believe that they are in many ways different than a traditional security, that the policy objectives of the Securities and Exchange Act, the good that that law was meant to accomplish, are different than how we would necessarily want to regulate decentralized things like this. And we would make these points and hopefully nothing would happen. But I cannot guarantee that. And one thing I always find important to do whenever talking to people in the community, because I have sort of a little bit of a view into both the technical community and into the regulatory community, is say, have you spoken with a lawyer? If not, please do. It's not always certain that you'll get a clear answer from a lawyer, but you should have a lawyer that you talk to so you understand the regulatory risks of what you're doing. And then if you still want to proceed, you should engage with regulators even. You should help explain the thing you've built, help explain why it's something really different and therefore not covered in existing law, and help explain why that difference is really what matters, why what you've built is better. We're trying to do this in the context of the DAO in that there's a couple of really interesting points to be made. So the reason for the Securities and Exchange Act was to address the information asymmetries that exist between a corporation like GE and what their internal structure looks like and what their risks and rewards might be to anybody who owned a part of them. The information asymmetries between those people and the people who would potentially invest in them. And if you think about it, investing in Google or Apple or GE is really giving your money to a black box. And you hope that that black box outputs more money than you put in. I mean, you hope that there are dividends or you hope the price of the share will rise. But it is a black box. You're putting your money into a black box. The DAO is not a black box entirely. 
I wouldn't say there are no information asymmetries that could be dangerous for investors, but they're very different. When we give money to the traditional company, we have no guarantees of precisely how it'll be used because it's a black box. But before we give any money to the DAO, we can, if we want, look at the code of the smart contract that specifies how the DAO is programmed in advance to use the received funds. And so any given decentralized organization or DAO may have voting rules, which means we'll still be uncertain of how other participants will vote, or it may have outside inputs like market prices that trigger the use of internal funds through oracles. But the rules for how this system will respond to those outside influences are specified in the software of the DAO before any funds are received. So in that sense, they are the ultimate disclosure of risks in a way that's fundamentally different than the disclosure of risks made in a prospectus by a private corporation. So that means that the policy problems here are different. The information asymmetries probably revolve more around the fact that most people can't read and understand the code that the smart contract is written in, and that they rely on third-party auditors, their smart friend, or whoever to tell them that this smart contract really does what it does. And even that, even if you've got the best expert in the world, software can have bugs. So that in itself is a risk. But that is a very different risk than when you hand your money to GE or Alphabet or Apple and say, go forth and use capital and make value and give me dividends or give me a return. A very different proposition with very different consumer protection, investor protection goals, I think. So maybe it's premature to treat this thing as a security, even if the legal definition could countenance that treatment. Maybe we should wait and see and then address the new and slightly different policy concerns that arise with new and slightly different policy, with new law or new regulation or a new approach to enforcing securities law. Fantastic. Where can people find out more about Coin Center and read some more of what you've written, Peter? So we are at coincenter.org. All of our outreach materials are completely public. We recently filed a comment with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, for example, about trying to get a federal fintech charter, which would be an exciting innovation in the way we regulate virtual currency companies, I think. We have a blog post that we've just published that deals with this subject specifically, with the DAO and with Ether, that outlines our policy thinking and also outlines some cautions we think are important for the community to be aware of, the developer community, that is. And we also have a series of plain language backgrounders that go back to our earlier days working more closely with Bitcoin specifically, but generally explaining a lot of the policy concerns here. So for example, there's a backgrounder on money transmission law, which is a much more foundational and formative problem perhaps than securities law. The original issue with these networks is that they allow people to move value. And sometimes that is treated as a regulated activity here in the US. So we've got resources on all of these policies and all of these laws, both for developers and also resources for policymakers about how the technology works. And that's all at coincenter.org. Perfect. All right. Hey, thanks a bunch, Peter. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. I know. Take it easy. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.info.